Tonight we are finishing our uh, series on the victorious Christian life. We spent the last several weeks uh, dealing with the subject of how to live the victorious Christian life, meaning how to not lose at the Christian life and how to, how to not uh, be a castaway or a failure. And we talked, if you remember, when we first started the series, we began with a sermon entitled Destined for Victory and how God has already given us a victory. We are predestinated to win. God has already given us a victory. If we don't walk in victory, it's because we chose not to, not because God wasn't able to. Then we talked about defining victory and what it means to win in your life and in my life. We talked about how Paul was able to come to the end of his life and say, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. We then talked about being disciplined for victory and how daily disciplines are required to live the victorious Christian life. We talked about daily Bible reading and prayer and those types of things. We talked about denying self for victory and how we must learn to deny our flesh if we're going to win. Last week, we talked about being dependent on the Holy Spirit for victory. We talked about the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit and how must we must learn to walk in the Spirit. This week, I want to uh, talk to you about the subject of being directed uh, for victory. And we're specifically going to be dealing with a subject of repentance in the Christian life. Now, just by way of introduction, I want to uh, point out a few things about repentance and talk about the Word before we get into our passage. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight, so keep your place there. But go with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter number 8, just by way of introduction. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you find the first and second books in the Bible, uh, they're all clustered together in the Old Testament. you got 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8, and let me begin by just explaining or defining the word repent or repentance for you uh, from Scripture. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 47. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 47. The word repent uh, means to turn or to turn in the way you think, to have a change of mind. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 47, the Bible defines the word for us. And uh, you should know that the Bible always defines itself. The Bible is its own dictionary. And before we move to, you know, there's nothing wrong with using a dictionary at the source or whatever, but we should always try to allow the Bible to define itself for us. In 1 Kings 8, 47, the Bible says says this, Yet if they shall, I want you to notice this word, bethink. See that word bethink there? The idea there is to reconsider something, is to, to look at something and, and to think it over again. He says, and if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captive, notice the word, and repent. See, he's defining for us this idea. What does it mean to repent? Repentance is a change of mind. It's when someone bethinks something, when they believe something, or they were heading in a, a certain direction in their thoughts, and, and they chose to turn from that, they chose to reconsider that, they chose to change their mind. He says, yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whether they were carried captives and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carry them captive, saying, we have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed Wickedness. Keep your place there in 1 Kings. So we're going to come back to 2 Samuel, which is right before 1 Kings here in a moment. But go with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah, just real quickly. Jonah chapter number 3. I know you're familiar with these verses, but let's look at them together. Towards the end of your Old Testament, you've got those big major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then you've got a, a bunch of small books, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Jonah chapter number 3. You remember the story of Jonah. He goes into Nineveh. He preaches the judgment of God coming in 40 days. I want you to notice how the, the Bible here again defines for us this word repentance. Repent, uh, Jonah chapter 3, look at verse number 9. The Bible says this, Who can tell if God will turn? Notice the word turn there. If God will turn and repent. I want you to notice how the word turn and repentance are used there at the same time. In the same way that in 1 Kings 8, 47, the word bethink and repent was used together. He says, who can tell if God will turn and repent? Notice, and turn away his fears 
anger. And again, his anger is a thought. It's an emotion. It's the way he felt about something. And they're saying maybe God will bethink himself. Maybe God will repent and change the way he feels about Nineveh. And, and uh, you say, why are you taking the time to show this? Today you have a lot of people and they want to tell you that the, whenever you see the word repent in the Bible, it's always referring to repenting of your sins. And the problem with that is that if every time you see the word repent or repentance in Scripture, it is a reference to repenting of your sins, then that would make God a sinner. Because here we see that God, they're saying maybe God will repent. Maybe God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger. So I want you to understand, God is not a sinner. God is not a man that he should sin. He doesn't have to repent of sin, but he can change his mind. He can say, I was going to destroy Nineveh, but now I'm going to choose not to destroy Nineveh. And today I'm not preaching on the subject of repentance in regards to salvation, but I want you to understand that the Bible does not teach that someone has to turn from their sins in order to be saved. Because look, if you've got to turn from your sin to be saved, that's adding works to salvation. You're there in Jonah 3. Look at verse 10. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 9 was talking about God bethinking himself. God changing his mind. God going from anger to not angry. But in Jonah 3.10, he saw, they're talking about man. Notice what they said. And God saw their, notice this word, works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. So there the Bible tells us that when someone turns, which we know the word turn means to repent, when someone turns from their evil way, when they turn away from their sin, the Bible defines that as works. Salvation is not of works. Over and over in the Bible we're told that we're not saved by works, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So when it comes to salvation, someone does not have to repent of their sins in order to be saved. Because if you have to repent of your sins to be saved, then you're adding works to salvation. And here's the thing, which sins? Because we all sin. No one on this earth will ever stop sinning. So of course we're not talking about repenting of your sins. Go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. And while you turn there, I'll just read or quote some books, uh, some, some verses for you. When it comes to salvation, I'm not preaching on this subject tonight, but when it comes to repentance in regards to salvation, the Bible is clear that repentance plays a part in salvation in the sense that there are those who must turn or change their mind in regards to their belief system. Either they had the wrong belief or they had no belief and they have to turn to God in that sense. Matthew 21, 32 says this, for John, this is what Jesus said. He said, for John came unto you in the way of righteousness. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, for John came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye believed him not. See, the problem was that they did not believe. The Pharisees did not believe the message of John. He says, ye believe him not. And then he says this, but the Pharisees and the, and, but the, and the harlots believed him. It says, and ye, when ye had uh, seen it, repented not that ye might believe him. See, when he talks about repentance, he says, you, you should have gone from unbelief to belief. Paul, the Bible says in the book of Acts, Paul said, then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is Christ Jesus. So when we're talking about repentance for salvation, we're talking about someone who was trusting in their works, and now they are turning or changing their mind and saying, I'm no longer trusting in my works, I'm now only trusting in Christ. Or maybe someone who was like an atheist, and they said, well, I did not believe in God, but now I'm choosing to turn and to believe. When it comes to repentance and regards to salvation, that's all it is. It's not, it's not turning from your sin and giving up alcohol and giving up fornication. Because look, if you have to give something up in regards to sin to be saved, then you are adding works to salvation. Mark 1.15 says, And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said this, Repent ye and believe the gospel. So when it comes to salvation, repentance is simply going from not believing to believing. From believing the wrong thing to believing the right thing. That's all repentance is. But I want you to understand something though. Repentance is something that plays a part not only in salvation, but in the life of believers. Some people have to repent of an unbelief or a wrong religion, you know, a, law, a wrong religious belief system. The Bible talks about repenting from idols. You say, well, why do they have to repent from idolatry? Because they were trusting those idols for salvation. Because that was their belief system. That was their religion. And look, you got to turn from wrong religion and wrong belief system in order to be saved. But even after you're saved, repentance 
And, you know, people, especially in our movement, we're so anti-repent of your sins that we don't even like to use the word. But, you know, the Bible uses the word repentance a lot in regards to those that are already saved. And you and I have to learn to repent in our lives uh, in order to live the victorious Christian life. Are you there in Revelation chapter 2? Look down at verse number 4. I feel like I'm just a little loud. You can just turn me down just a little bit. Not too much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse number 4. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the churches of Asia. These people are believers. They're already saved. And I want you to notice what he says to them. Notice what he says in Revelation 2, 4 to the church of Ephesus. He says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Notice what he says. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So I want you to notice there, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, you've got to repent of certain things, or I'm going to remove the candlestick, which is, uh, the candlestick is a picture of the church. He said, I'm going to remove the franchise of my local church from you, if you don't get some things right. Look down at verse number 15, same chapter, in, in Revelation 2.15, he's talking to the church in Pergamos. He says, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Notice verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. Now he's talking to the church at Thyatira. He says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that, uh, because thou hast Excuse me, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Notice verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse 2. And I want you to notice, this is Jesus speaking to believers. He's talking to churches. He's saying, you got to get the sin out of your church. He said, I expect you to repent. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse 2. He's talking to the church in Sardis. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse number 19. Skip down to verse number 19. Here you have the famous church of the Laodiceans in Revelation 3.19. Jesus said this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. So I want you to understand when we're talking about repentance, we're not, it's not always in regards to salvation. When it is in regards to salvation, it's always about repenting from unbelief to belief. Saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That's, salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When we're talking about salvation, that's what repentance is. It's from turning from unbelief, the wrong belief, to belief. But in the Christian life, God does expect us, as we saw there, as Jesus was speaking to those churches at Revelation, almost every one of them, he's telling them, repent, repent, repent. He's talking to them about repenting of their sins, dealing with certain sins, getting certain things right in their lives. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. When we get to 2 Corinthians, we see a lot of talk in regards to repentance. But I want you to notice, just like the book of Revelation, the church at Corinth was... The, the book of Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth, which is written to believers. People will twist this passage to try to say, see, you got to repent to be saved. And the word salvation is used in Scripture, and, and we'll look at it here in a minute in this passage. But I want you to understand the context. He's talking to a church, and he's talking about discipline in their church and how they had to kick certain people out and how they had to deal with that. And that's the context. It's not salvation. And that will be clear as we go through. Now you say, well, why preach a whole sermon on repentance in the Christian life? And here's what you need to understand. We're talking about the victorious Christian life. How to not lose at the Christian life. How to not be a failure or a castaway. And we've talked about a lot of things that we need. The filling of the Spirit, the daily disciplines, all of that. But you need to understand something. Sometimes in the Christian life, we take detours. And sometimes our hearts get hard. And sometimes we allow sin to come in our lives. And, 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 and there's different extremes of that. 
But people get backslidden. And people start to fade out. And people start to get sin in their lives. And from time to time, if you're going to continue the victorious Christian life, you're going to have to learn how to practice repentance in your life. You're going to have to learn how to repent of sin so that you aren't that castaway, you aren't that failure, you aren't that one that used to be on fire, that used to be doing something great for God, but now you've gone off, you're backslidden, you're not right with God. So tonight I want to give you steps in regards to repentance, true repentance, godly repentance, how to repent of your sins in the Christian life. I'm going to give you three statements, I'd like you to write them down. Statement number one is this. Point number one is this. I want you to notice in this passage the admission of repentance. The admission of repentance. We begin in verse 8 by seeing the concern of a pastor. Paul was writing here to the church at Corinth, and Paul himself was not a pastor, but he was playing the role of a pastor for these people. He's the one that had planted the church. He was the evangelist that planted it, and, and, and he was kind of their spiritual leader, and he was helping them along the way. I want you to notice what Paul says, and, and, and you may not understand this, but when I read these passages, uh, I, I really connect with them, and I, I want to really speak to the guys that are training for ministry, that one day the Lord may use them to pastor a church, because you need to understand the heart of a pastor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, he says this, he says, For though I made you sorry, he said, For though I made you sorry with a letter. I want you to notice what he says. He says, I do not repent, though I did repent. Now again, we know the word repent means to turn or to change your mind. And here's what he's saying. He said, I made you sorry with a letter. I communicated to you something and it made you feel bad. It made you sorry. And he says, I don't repent that I did that. But he said, can I be honest with you? I did repent. For I perceived that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Keep your place there in 2 Corinthians 7. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at uh, uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, not chapter 2. Uh, yeah, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 12. Paul had confronted these people with sin in their lives. And he says this, and I, I'm so thankful that God, because I'm here to tell you, and I hope you take this the, the, the right way. I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But there's so many times when God burdens me as a pastor. And you can ask my wife and talk to her about this. God will burden me in my heart, and I'll see things going on in, in our church or in the lives of our people. And look, whether you like it or not, God has given me the job of, of, of watching and praying. And I, the Bible says that I will give an account for your souls. And it is my job to try to help and to try to correct. And sometimes, like Paul here, I have to confront some things. And whether it's through a sermon or maybe it's even uh, writing a letter or making a phone call or making a visit and having to deal with certain things. And there's so many Sunday nights where I'll, I'll go home and I'll just kind of tell my wife, man, I wish I wouldn't preach that. You know, I, I, I just, I, 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 I knew, I know it needed to be said and I know it needed to be dealt with, but man, I just feel so bad. And, and I see Paul, he says, he says, I don't repent, though I did repent. And I can just envision Paul as he's writing the letter to the Corinthians and he's dealing with issues within the church that have to be dealt with. And he sends the letter off and then immediately regretting it. Not because it was wrong, but because you know it's going to make people sorry. And I just want to tell you as a pastor, you should know the heart of a pastor is that you're burdened for your people. My wife and I will be burdened. The heart of a pastor and the heart of a pastor's wife is often to be burdened for those that we lead. Because I wish it wasn't the case, but people get backslidden. And people get their hearts wrong. And it's hard to watch an individual that was once on fire for God, once faithful to God, once doing great works for God, and now they're not in church. Now their heart is bitter. Now, and you know what the hard thing is? That the bigger the, bigger the ministry grows, the bigger the church grows, it just seems like it never ends. Because you're dealing with one individual, and by the time you get them all fixed up and get them encouraged and have a talk with them and try to help them out, as soon as you get, you know, victory in one area, now there's another person we got to deal with. And by the time you get that one ready and give them a phone call and send them an encouraging text and send them a letter and say, what's going on, brother? Or what's going on in your life? Or how can we help you? And you kind of encourage them and then you see them kind of getting back to how they were. And then you're like, man, praise the Lord. So-and-so's back. And then you got another person to deal with. And it just seems like there's always somebody who's struggling. Always somebody who's getting backslidden. 
Always somebody that's burdening you. 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse 12, notice what Paul said. He said, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door opened unto me of the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 13. He said, I had no rest in my spirit. I had no rest in my spirit. I'm here to tell you guys, those of you that want to be pastors, just, just get ready to live a life with having no rest in your spirit. There's many, a, there's many a morning when I wake up and the first thing in my mind is brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, their marriage, their children. Why? Because it is the job, it is the job, it is the concern of a pastor. It is the pastor's heart and the pastor's wife's heart where you're just burdened. There's many a Sunday night. My wife and I are just up till one in the morning talking about what do you think is happening with that family? What do you think is happening with that individual? Why do you, why do you think they're growing cold? And, and, and is, is, is there something going on? Have, is there something, an issue? How, how can we help? And I see that in this letter as Paul, he says, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking leave of them, I went from this to Macedonia. And he had sent Titus. He'd written a letter to the church at Corinth and then he sent Titus to see how they had received it. And he was waiting to hear back about how they had received it. And he said, I just had no rest in my spirit. There's always a burden. There's always an issue. There's always someone getting backslidden and someone making wrong choices, someone going down the wrong road. And I'm not, I'm not trying to complain to you or, or make you feel sorry. I'm just trying to tell you there's a concern. A, 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 a man that has a true pastor's heart, no matter where he is, because Paul was not at Corinth. He said, I was in Troas to preach Christ's gospel. He said, I was on a preaching trip. I was at a preaching engagement. But the whole time, my heart was with our people. My heart was burdened and concerned. He said, I had no rest. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 8. Not only was there the concern of the pastor, but I want you to notice there was the confrontation of the preacher. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He says, for though I made you sorry, notice what he says, with a letter. I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. See, you know what makes a preacher a preacher? It's not pretty sermons with alliterated outlines. It's when you confront people with their sin. It's when you write the letter. It's when you send the text message. It's when you make the visit, when you make the phone call. When you confront someone and say, what's going on? Why, why are you making these decisions? What, what are you doing? How can we help you? Paul said, I wrote this letter and it burdened me. And we have the letter. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 1. I want you to notice what he said to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, we can read the letter that he wrote. We can read the confrontation that he made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, he said this, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. He had heard that the church of Corinth was allowing open fornication in their church. And notice what he said to them in verse 2. He said, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. Look at verse 6. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lot? He wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. He said, I hear things about the church. I hear that you're allowing sin, open sin. He said, you're puffed up. It's not good. He wrote the letter. Look, he wrote the letter under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. The letter happened to be scripture. We know the Bible says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It was God's will that he wrote the letter. But it was that letter that he said, as soon as I sent it off, I repented that I even sent it. Why? Because I knew it was going to hurt you. Because I knew the confrontation was going to make you sorry. But listen to me. Please listen to me. That's the job of a pastor. That's the job of a preacher. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to help people that are getting wrong to try to get right. Go to 2 Samuel chapter number 12. 2 Samuel chapter number 12. And I want this to be a lesson to those of you that want to be pastors. Don't get in the ministry if you can't confront people with sin. Don't get in the ministry if you can't confront people with sin. You say, well, I can confront people with sin. You could, you, you, we all think we can confront people with sin until you actually do it. And then they start lying about you. Start spreading rumors about you. Start saying, well, the only reason he, he said that to me is because and they're just spreading lies. 
Somehow it has to do with money, and somehow it has to do this, somehow it has to do with that. I'm just here to tell you the heart of a pastor is not to preach sermons. People think, oh, I'll preach a sermon. This is the easy part of the job. This is the fun part of the job. Being a pastor is not writing sermons. Being a pastor is perceiving and discerning and praying and being filled with the Spirit and asking God to help you, to help the people that He's put before you. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the problem is that nine times out of ten, people don't receive it well. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see the prophet Nathan. Look at verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 12, you know the story in chapter 11. David, the great David, committed adultery, killed Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Would you like that job? David has the authority to put anyone he wants to death. And God says, I need you to go confront someone for me. Who, who got David? The king? Yep, that one. And the Lord said unto Nathan, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and another poor. I like Nathan's tactfulness and grace. He uses a parable. It says, The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, nourished up. And it grew together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Isn't it interesting how we can always identify sin in other people better than we can in ourselves? And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that had done this thing shall shortly die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Notice verse 7. Here's where you really learn that Nathan is a prophet of God. When he says this, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed the king over Israel and delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Say, Pastor, what are you trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. When I stand up here and confront you with sin, I don't do it lightly. And people think, Ah, oh, you just enjoy getting on people. No, it actually burdens me a lot. I'd rather not, because I know most people aren't going to receive it well. Because I know most people are just going to get mad and get upset and lie and get angry and get bitter. But you know, that's what God has called you to do. And listen to me, when people want to quit coming to church, it's for one reason, because they don't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to be confronted with their own sin. They don't want a man of God to stand up and say, thou art the man. Here's what the Bible says. Keep your finger there in 2 uh, uh, Samuel chapter 12. Go, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the road to repentance, you say, how, how, do you get, how, how does someone repent of their sins? There must be admission first. See, in order for you to be able to repent of your sins, I'm talking about after salvation, you have to be able to admit it, which means you have to be able to take correction. Here's a question I have for you. How do you do with correction? So you know what I've learned over the last seven years of ministry? Everybody loves hard preaching as long as it's to the other guy. We love hard preaching as long as it's the sodomite, as long as it's the abortion, as long as it's anybody but me. But as soon as it comes down your road, then, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Who are you to tell me? How do you deal with confrontation? Because if you're the type of person that cannot be confronted, if you're the type of person that cannot be corrected, if you're the type of person that, no, look, I'm not saying me, I'm just saying, is there, anybody, is there anybody in your life that could come to you and say, I'm concerned about some things I see in your life. I want to talk to you about it. Is there anybody in this world that could come to you? I'm, talk, I'm talking to the men. Is there anybody in this world? It doesn't have to be me. I'm just saying, is there anybody in this world that could come to you and say, now I'm a little concerned about your church attendance. I've noticed you've been missing a lot lately. Everything all right? And that you would take that and receive that and say, well, you know, I've actually been struggling. You ladies, is there anybody that could correct you? I mean, you'd think your husband would be able to correct you, but I'm, I know that's not usually the case. I mean, is there anybody in this world? I mean, when the, when the Bible is preached and it's coming down your way, how do you deal with that? Because the only way to live the victorious Christian life is to be able to receive correction. 
And to understand that when a man of God or when a woman of God confronts you about something, they're not doing it because they want to make you feel bad. They're doing it because they love you, because you need it. Notice how they received the correction. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 7. He says, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he hath comforted you. Notice what Paul says. He says, when he told us, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoice the more. See, Paul said, I wrote you this letter and immediately after I sent it, I regretted the fact that I even sent it, but, but I knew it was the right thing. And then I sent Titus because I wanted to see how you'd receive it when I got to Troas. Titus wasn't there and it was so hard for me because my heart was burdened for you. Because my spirit was burdened for you. But then Titus showed up. And Titus told me that you received it well. And Titus told me that you didn't get puffed up. You didn't get angry. You didn't get bitter. You received and accepted the confrontation. And he said, I rejoice the more. See, the goal, the goal of hard preaching is to help you get right. The, whole of con- the goal of confrontational preaching is not to make you feel lousy. It's to help you get right. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You want to know why David lived the victorious Christian life? Even though he committed adultery, even though he committed murder, even though he committed some of the worst sins you could in, in Scripture, and he was still able to be called a man after God's own heart, the Lord Jesus Christ will still sit on the throne of David. I believe one of the reasons is because David was able to be confronted. David received correction. Nathan says to David, Thou art the man. Notice David's response, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Here's a question I have for you. Are you a David? When confronted with sin, do you just make up excuses and say, Well, I don't, you don't know the whole story. Let me get my uh, story out. Or do you say, You know what? I have sinned. I was wrong. I've sinned against the Lord. We see the confrontation. We see the confession of the people. Go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you open up your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after Nathan had confronted him with sin. I want you to notice what David says. Psalm 51. If you look at verse 1, if you've got the headings in your, in your Bible, the heading above Psalm 51, says this, to the chief musician of Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Notice what David said. He said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Notice verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight, thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Keep your finger there in Psalms. We're going to come back to it. But here's the question. Are you able to admit sin? Are you able to receive correction? If you do not learn to quit having your emotions on your sleeve and to realize. See, what happened at the church of Corinth is they got a letter from Paul, and they said, wow, Paul wrote us a letter. Isn't that exciting? They opened that thing up. They started reading it, and he's telling them, you guys are wrong. I hear you're doing things, and they're not right. I'm not there, and I've already judged. And you know what? They didn't get mad. They didn't get angry. You know what their response was? Paul's right. And when Titus showed up and said, hey, Paul wants to know what you thought of his letter, here's what they said to Titus. They said, Paul's right. We're getting it right. We were wrong. And look, you, you will not survive. You will not survive in the Christian life if you don't learn to take correction. If you don't learn to say, you know what? I was wrong. I made a mistake. I have sinned. There is no repentance without admission. You must admit. You must make admission. You must be able to confess your own sin and say, I have sinned. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you have to be able to confess it. You have to be able to confront it. You have to be able to look it in the eye and say, like David said, I have sinned. I want you to notice, first of all, the admission of sin, the admission of repentance. Go back to 2 Corinthians 7, 9. But there's more to repentance than just admission. That's the first step. You have to admit it. You have to admit it. You have to confront it. 
You have to be able to look at your life and say, wow, that was wrong. I'm wrong. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God says. That's not what God's will for my life is. There's the admission of repentance, but I would like you to notice, secondly, the attitude of repentance. The attitude of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. He said, my goal is not to make you sorry, but that ye sorrowed, notice what he says, to repentance. For ye were made sorry, notice what this says, after a godly manner. That ye might receive damages by us in nothing. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Now again, we're not talking about spiritual salvation because this is a church dealing with church discipline. Just get this in your head. Salvation in the Bible is not always spiritual salvation. When the Bible says in Matthew 24 about end times, they that endure unto the end shall be saved. It's not, that's not teaching work salvation. That's talking about if you can make it to the end of tribulation, God's going to save you because he's coming back. Here, he's talking about the fact that their church can be saved, that they can restore fellowship. He's not talking about uh, 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 physical salvation. But I want you to notice what he says. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I want you to notice that he talks about the fact that there are two different types of sorrows. There is godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. He says, the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Did you keep your place in, in Psalm 51? Go back to Psalm 51, look at verse 16. See, not only is there an admission to repentance, but there is an attitude of repentance. The attitude is godly sorrow. The attitude is when your sorrow in your heart, when you realize, I was wrong. Notice what David said when Nathan came to him. Psalm 51, in verse 16, the Bible says this, For thou desirest not sacrifice. This is David speaking to God. He says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. He said, If there was an offering I could give, if there was a sacrifice I could give, I would give it. Notice verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite. The word contrite means sincere remorse. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou will not despise. See, the attitude of, of repentance is godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Say, well, what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? It's very simple. It's this. Worldly sorrow is just when someone feels bad, they got caught. I got caught. You, politicians get caught in adultery, get God doing all sorts of weird things, and they're sorry. But they're not really sorry. They're just sorry they got caught. See, you say, well, how do you know that it's worldly sorrow? Because worldly sorrow produces nothing. The outcome of worldly sorrow is not the salvation of your marriage. It's not the salvation of the relationship. It's not the salvation of your career. It's nothing. Worldly sorrow worketh to death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. But notice, godly sorrow worketh repentance. When someone actually is sorry and it produces repentance, then you know you got godly sorrow. When someone is just sorry they got caught, but there's nothing they're going to do to change it. There's nothing they're going to do to, uh, to keep it from happening again. There's no action they're going to take. All that, you know, people, I, I do with people all the time, all sorts of things, drugs, uh, drugs, alcohol, all sorts of things. And it's like, oh, I relapsed. And it's like, well, what are we going to do? To check? Oh, I'm just going to try harder. No, that's worldly sorrow. Because you know what that means? It means nothing. Try harder. You weren't trying harder the first time? I'm just going to try harder not to commit adultery. No. All you are is sorry you got caught. See, godly sorrow worketh repentance. Godly sorrow actually does something. It takes action. So we saw the admission of repentance. We saw the attitude of repentance. It's sorrow. It's part, look, it's conviction. It's part of the deal. Sometimes I stand up to preach here and I know that the things I'm saying might hurt somebody, but it's my job to say it because who else is going to say it? That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm the pastor. The goal is that you receive it. The goal is that you're able to take it. The goal is that unlike Saul, who just makes excuses and says, well, it's, not, it's the people's fault, it's the other people's fault, that you'd be like David and you'd say, I have sinned. I've done wrong. I can admit it. I can have the proper attitude. I said, number one, tonight, we see the admission of repentance. Number two, we see the attitude of repentance. Number three, tonight, I'd like you understand the actions of repentance. See, true repentance... Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Worldly sorrow produces nothing. Worldly sorrow is just sorry you got caught. Godly sorrow actually wants to do 
something. Second Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 11. Notice what they said. Notice what he said about the church at Corinth. Notice the action of repentance. I like you to notice two words. The first word is carefulness. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Notice what he says. What carefulness it wrought in you. See, true repentance means that you will take careful action to stop. Did you keep your place in Psalms? Go to Psalm 38. Look at verse 17. Psalm 38 and verse 17. Psalm 38 and verse 17. If you had your place from Psalm 51, just flip a few pages back. Psalm 38, verse, verse 17. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 38 and verse 17. Psalm 38 and verse 17. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, For I am ready to... You notice this word? Halt. You know what that means? He's saying, I'm ready to stop. And my sorrow, this is godly sorrow, is continually before me. See, when someone has a drug problem, when someone has an alcohol problem, when someone has a pornography problem, when someone has a fornication problem, when someone has an, an adultery, this is, not, this is not repentance. When someone is openly fornicating and you go to them and you say, hey, we can't have open fornication in our church. You need to get right or get out. And they're like, well, I'm just going to get out. And I'm just going to come back whenever I'm good and ready. That's not repentance. That produced nothing. That did nothing. There's no godly sorrow there. There's no action. There's no desire to halt. See, when someone says, I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry I went down the road. I am ready to halt. I'm ready to stop it. I'm ready to stop doing that and stop going on that road. He says, that is a sorrow that is continually before me. See, True repentance, we're talking about repenting of your sins. The action of repentance is you take careful action to stop. That you, he says, what carefulness it wrought in you. He said, I, I see your life now, and, and you walk so carefully. In other passages, he uses the word circumspect, and he says, you, you walk carefully to make sure it doesn't happen again. Go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 13. Let me give you two, two thoughts when it comes to carefulness. Careful walk. You say, well, how, how, what does it mean to be careful in our actions when it comes to sin? I want to give you two, two thoughts in regards to that. The first one is this. When someone has godly sorrow that worketh to repentance, when they are going to take careful actions, and when we can look at them and say, what carefulness is wrought in you? There's two things that I can see in Scripture that those individuals do, and there might be more, I don't know, but I, I, I saw two as I studied. The first one is this. You remove the provision of sin. Romans 13 and verse 14 says this. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 says this. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not, notice what it says, make not provision for the flesh. That word provision means the providing or supplying of, to fulfill the lust thereof. See, when someone truly gets their heart right, they not only, they, they say, I want to stop the sin, I want to halt the sin, but they remove any provisions, any supplies, anything that might help them go back into that sin. See, when someone comes to this church and maybe they hear me or they hear some other pastor or, or whoever preach on, on music and worldly music and how it's not of God and God doesn't want us to listen to music that's talking about physical relationships outside of marriage and God doesn't want us listening to music that promotes sin and that promotes drugs and that promotes alcohol and that promotes worldliness. And by the way, I think that's all the worldly music. Amen. I mean, I don't care if it's country music, rap music, whatever music, it's all just promoting sin. The Bible says the love of the world, uh, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And, and you might come in and you say, man, I, I, need, to get, I need to get right with, with the music in my life. And God doesn't want me to listen to this country music talking about drinking. God doesn't want me listening to this rap music talking about physical relationships outside of marriage. God doesn't want me listening to this, you know, lovey-dovey music, you know, soft rock, whatever. And, and, but, and you say, I'm going to stop doing it. And then but you, you take all your CDs and you put them up in the closet. Well, just in case I get backslidden. You never really got right with God. Because you know what you're doing? You're making a provision for the flesh. Well, just in case I get backslidden, I won't have to go buy all those CDs again. 
Women will come to church and they'll hear me preach a sermon on dress standards. And, and I'm not preaching on dress standards tonight, but I'll quote things from the Bible where Deuteronomy says that a man shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination will show from the Bible how God has designed for men to wear pants and for women to wear uh, uh, skirts and dresses. And if you're here tonight and you don't do that, that's fine. It's, that, that's between you and God. But that's what the Bible says and we'll teach it. And you say, well, that makes me feel sorry. I know. It's my job to confront you. And then a woman say, well, I'm going to stop wearing pants, but I'm going to put all my pants away just in case I get backslidden. You're not right with God. Amen. You're making provision for the flesh. You're saying, well, just in case, just in case. See, if you really got right with God, you get rid of those magazines. If you really got right with God, you get rid of those CDs. If you really got right with God, you would not make provision for the flesh. See, Paul said, I know that you had godly sorrow. He said, because what carefulness it wrought in you. You began to walk very carefully in life to make sure that you didn't go down that road. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means you don't make provision for the flesh. It means you remove the provision. But there's a second thing. It also means that you remove temptation. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. He says this, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. God says with every temptation, he makes a way for you to escape it. You know what that means is that God does not expect you, and you cannot live your life in the presence of temptation. If you live your life in front of temptation, you will give in eventually. You say, well, how do I win the war on temptation? You take the escape route. You take the escape shoe. See, people say to me, oh, well, I'm going to take my family to the river, and I'm going to take my family to the beach, and, I, you know, and I'm going to sit there and look at all these women in their bikinis and, and look at all of them naked, but I'm not going to think about that. Well, here, you're lying because you're not, you can't live your life in the presence of temptation. Amen. You can't live your life just constantly being tempted. You say, how do you deal with temptation? You take the escape. You don't even live in it. You don't live in it. You got a drinking problem? Why are you going to the bar? Well, I was just going to drink water. No, you're going to fail because you can't live in temptation. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, when someone actually gets their heart right and someone actually repents of their sin and it brings the right attitude and it brings the admission, they confess it. They say, I was wrong. They don't excuse it. They don't make uh, uh, jokes about it. They say that was wrong and their attitude is right. And then their actions follow. And there's carefulness. And they say, I'm not going to live with the provision of the flesh. And I'm not going to live in the temptation. I'm not going to live with temptation before me because God says the only way to conquer temptation is to take the escape. He shall make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. That means the only way you can bear it is to escape. You cannot live. Listen to me. You cannot live in the presence of temptation. So quit trying. You will fail every time. All you're doing is making a provision for the flesh. All you're doing is you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry they found out. You're sorry that someone knows. But there's no action being taken because it's worldly sorrow. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me give you the last thing and we'll be done. Not only is there a carefulness, but I want you to notice that there is a clearing. They take careful action to stop, but they also desire to clear their name. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at verse 11. 2 Corinthians 7, 11 says, For behold, this selfsame thing that, we, that ye sorrowed after godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, notice these words, what clearing of yourselves. And then he uses these other words, but I want you to notice at the end of the verse, so what we read up to it says clearing of yourselves, then at the end of the verse he says, approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So he talks about the fact that you're trying to clear your name, and then he uses these words, to describe what that means. He says, what clearing of yourself. Notice what he says. Yay, what indignation. I mean, you get so mad and angry that you went down that road, that you fell for it, that you, uh, that you submitted to the temptation of Satan. You say, what indignation. Yay, what fear. All of a sudden, there's fear that I might do that again. Yay, what vehement desire and what zeal. Yay, what revenge. You want to take revenge on your own sin. You know what David did? Here's what David did. David got his heart right and he said, I don't want to go down in history as this is the last thing anyone heard about David. 
David understood this will be a blot in my life for the rest of my life. David understood from now on there are two stories that will be told about my life. David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba. He understood that. But you know what David decided when he got right? He said, I don't want it to be said that this is what knocked me out of the Christian life. He said, I want it to go down in record that I confessed my sin and I admitted it and I had godly sorrow. I had the right attitude and I took action to fix it. See, see, when you really get your heart right and when you really begin to repent of your sins, not only will it make you start walking carefully, but it will make you want to clear your name. I don't want to go down in history with my wife thinking that was it. The last thing, he was a failure. I don't want to go down in history with my children thinking, man, that was it. I don't, want to, I don't want to go down in history as a pastor of Verity Baptist Church and, wow, he did all these great things and they started in a house and God helped them and God built it and they did this great thing. They had those protests and then he committed adultery. He, see, there's a clearing. There's a clearing. And when someone truly gets their heart right, they, they say, I want to clear myself. Well, Paul said, notice what he says at the end of the verse, verse 11. He says, in all things ye have approved yourselves. Notice what he says, to be clear of this matter. He says, it's clear. You got it right. Praise the Lord. And by the way, that's the right attitude to have with people. When they truly get their hearts right, when they truly repent, when they admit and their attitude is right and their actions are careful, we should, we should be willing to accept them back and to clear their names. And to say, you know what, David, that's in the past. It's under the blood. He says they cleared their name. You're here, maybe you're here tonight, you say, I don't, I don't need to repent of anything. I don't know, maybe that's true. But I will tell you this, if you expect to finish the Christian life, there will be times that you get a little sideways, or you get a little backslidden, or you get a little detoured, and you're going to have to learn to kind of get directed back to the way you were going. And the only way to do that is to practice repentance in your life. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, you admit it. You cannot repent without admission. You cannot repent without the proper attitude. And you cannot repent without the proper actions. To live the victorious Christian life, you must be able to receive correction and to repent correctly. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, I realize that most churches do not preach sermons like these. These are not the type of sermons that people will give you accolades for. But these are needed sermons in our lives. Because, Father, every single one of us is going to take a detour. Lord willing, not as extreme as David's. But we're going to get sideways. We're going to get backslidden. We're going to sin. And there might be a godly pastor who writes a letter, who makes a phone call, who makes a visit, who shows up at the meeting and confronts you with it. And Lord, I pray you'd help each and every one of us to be able to receive that correction and to be able to repent correctly. Lord, help us to live as we finish this series. Lord, help all of us to live the victorious Christian life, to not lose, to not be a failure, to not be a castaway. And help us, Lord, to learn to practice repentance when it's needed in our lives. We love you, Father. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for restoring us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.